Well, welcome everybody to Native Women's Bible Study. We're so happy that you would join us today. And uh, being outside, we're just reminded that all of creation declares the goodness, the wisdom, the beauty of the God that we worship today. And uh, I wanted to remind us of one truth from God's scripture today, that uh, even the breath in your lungs, it comes from him. So before we worship, I just want to invite you to inhale and exhale. Let that be a reminder today, a sign, another demonstration of God's goodness, of his careful provision for your life today, that you have the gift of this moment and the gift of breath. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. So we sing, great are you, Lord, great are you, Lord, you give life. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore, you restore every heart that is broken. We cry with great, great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. Great are you, Lord. You give life, you are love. You give life, you are love. You bring light to the darkness you give, you restore every heart that is broken. We sing, Great are you, Lord! Great are you, Lord! It's your breath, it's your breath in our lives. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath. your praise and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Lord. Oh, we declare today all the earth and all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great Shout your praise, and all the earth will 
shout your praise. Our hearts will rise, these bones will sing.
Hi, friends. Welcome back. We are in week 10. Can you believe it? We've just been cruising through this thing. Um, I get to start off today with a very exciting announcement. Um, our women's ministry team has been praying into what God would have for our community this summer. And I'm excited to announce that we are going to do something called Summer in the Psalms. Uh, what it's going to be, it's going to be a reading plan, uh, a daily reading plan for you to dive in. But really the heart behind it is we want our community to be focused around God's word together. And so you and I are going to go through the ins and the outs of the Psalms, the highs, the low, the griefs, the joys, the lamentations. Uh, the Psalms are packed with emotions. And after the year that we've had, uh, we really believe that this is going to be an opportunity for all of us to get on board, dig into God's word, to grow deeply this summer. And so you'll have the option to join a six-week group uh, to process just what you're learning. And so for those of you who've been with us for a long time, you know, historically, we've done summer book clubs. And this year, as we were praying about it, we just, we landed on the place, why not choose the best book in the world, the greatest love story ever written, the world's best-selling book, the Bible. Um, so stay tuned for that. Uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you to dive in, to invest, to just grow with the Lord in the Word this year and this summer. So um, I'm excited to announce that and we'll have more details coming up about how you can register and get involved. But just in the back of your mind, know that when summer's coming, the Psalms are coming with it. It's going to be good. So want to share that with you first as our most dedicated audience in this season, um, and it's going to be a blast. So uh, we're diving back into the Word this week. As you've, you know that we're really hammering it out. We're doing about two chapters a week, which is a big chunk of Paul's journey. And so last week uh, we left off when Paul was about to get flogged and he, he used his Roman citizenship and he said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You cannot hit me or touch me unless I've been proven guilty. And so what they do is they bring him into the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that Paul used to sit on. They bring him to testify to see what's actually he's guilty of and if he is guilty. And so that's where we're jumping in today. Today, uh, we're going to talk about what it means uh, to stand firm even in our failures. I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of seasons of failure in my life. And 
pandemic itself feels just like a season of failure all around us. Everything's different. Everything's harder. It's hard to see progress. It's hard to see hope in some things. Uh, but we're going to dive into Paul's ministry and where he's at. And we're going to watch as the Lord ministers to him in that place, to encourage him to stand firm, to stand for what he believes in, despite what's happening around him. And so I think there's a real invitation for you and I, as we read the lesson to this week, to think about where is the Lord asking you to stand firm? And it might not be in a place that feels like a success. It might not be in a place that you feel like you're thriving. It might be in a dark season or in a hard relationship or in a job that feels like it doesn't end. I don't know where that is for you, but I want to invite you uh, to journey with Paul as we see how he stands firm even when things aren't going his way and aren't necessarily looking up. Uh, So I think there's a lot of words for us in here today. So before we get started, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in, starting in chapter 23. So will you pray with me? Father, um, God, we just surrender this time to you, Lord, that your will would be done, that you'd have your way in us, Father. Uh, And we want to be people who stand firm, Lord, who stand firm on your truth and your promises. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts today, God, that you'd speak specifically to each woman's circumstances, God. We're all different people created for different things. And so it doesn't look the same for all of us to hear this word. I pray that you would minister to each woman where she's at today, Father. So we invite you and we invite your Holy Spirit to do a work that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's dive in. We're going right to Acts 23, verse 1. Let's go. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers... I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. This is what we just talked about. They could not strike somebody who was held to be figured out if they were guilty or not until they were found guilty. So Ananias did violate the law. Um, Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So the first lesson we learned today in this of lessons of how to stand firm, humility first. Humility first. Humility is hard for us. You and I, we can get riled when something isn't right, when there's an injustice. And in this case, when Ananias, the high priest, struck Paul for saying something that he didn't agree with, Paul knew his rights as a Roman citizen. He's like, you cannot hit me. You're, you're here to put me on judgment, but you were disobeying the law. So we see Paul kind of rise up, right? Does anyone else have a little bit of anger, pride, temper, that when somebody does something unjust against you, you, something in you rises up. Here he uses, he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. If anyone needed a, a comeback or an insult for this week, that's a new one, the whitewashed wall. I looked into it. What it means is, is if a wall is covered in dirt or graffiti, they put a cover of white over it to cover the impurities. But really, all that gunk is still there underneath. And so Paul totally slams Ananias, who is, what we know is he is a corrupt high priest. He takes uh, a little cut out of all the offerings that comes in, and eventually God does strike him down, but not today. Um, So what we see is Paul is basically defending himself. He's saying, you can't hit me. And then they say, brother Paul, 
this you insult God's high priest. And Paul's first posture, as he said, I did not realize he was the high priest. It's written that you do not speak evil about the rule of your people. The first thing Paul does is he humbles himself. He chooses the war and not the battle. It's not about who's right or wrong about this. Paul is here to preach the good news to his fellow, fellow Israelites. That's Paul's mission. And so he doesn't get sidetracked in this. When they say, you insulted the high priest, Paul doesn't say, well, no, I didn't. I have the right to do it. He didn't defend himself. He humbled himself, uh, which is just such an example of servant leadership, to know when we are to humble ourselves, to remove our pride. It's not about being right or wrong all the time right? In this situation, Paul was actually right. He was following the rule. But what he would have done if he he would have gone down that rabbit trail to win that battle, he would have lost the war, the bigger picture of getting to preach to the Sanhedrin and telling them about the hope that they have in Christ. So the first thing, when you and I are put in a position where things are hard, things look dark, the first thing we need to do is we need to humble ourselves. We need to remember Paul submits himself to the law. He says, you're right, it says that, that I should honor my ruler. A lot of commentators believe that there's a variety of reasons why Paul couldn't see Ananias or didn't know he was the high priest. Uh, one theory is that Paul's been out of the game now for about 20 years. Paul's been traveling around Asia and different parts of the world preaching the good news. He doesn't, he might not know that Ananias was the high priest at the time because remember it's been 20 years since he's been part of the Sanhedrin where he was on that ruling council. And so that's one theory. Another theory is that when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, some scholars believe that he was, he literally was blinded. Remember he had to be led by the hands that Paul had bad vision and residually after that. And there's a few places in the New Testament that speak about Paul not being able to see well. So we don't know why he didn't know or see that Ananias was the high priest when he spoke back to him. But when he realized that it was a level of authority, Paul submitted himself. He humbled himself. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I wonder in whatever situation you're in this week, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, is there an area where your pride is getting in the way of what God's called you to do? Maybe it's in a relationship with a friend, maybe it's somebody, a coworker, maybe it's one of your children, where there's something in you that that you want to be right. You know you're right, but that's not the point of that relationship. God has something bigger in store for you. And it's going to take you removing the pride, humbling yourself for God to accomplish his mission through you. I wonder, would you ask the Lord to reveal to you where you need to humble yourself, where temper, anger, even when it's righteous, isn't the answer. It's not the way. Here we see Paul starting off his approach to the Sanhedrin saying, you know what? You're right. I didn't honor the law. I uplift the law. I submit to it. Humility first is the first lesson we learn in standing firm. So let's carry on. We're diving into verse six. It says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if an 
a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Second lesson we learned about standing firm is apply wisdom to the situation. So Paul just insulted the high priest. Paul had this, he humbled himself, but Paul already knew things weren't going well for him. And so instead of doing a traditional Paul where he dives into his story and testifies about how he knows Jesus, Paul He's, he has a sense of discernment. He looks out and he sees that the Sanhedrin is divided. Now there's two groups that are listening to him today, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. They believe in the power of the spirit. The Sadducees do not believe that. And one of the things Paul knew he was on trial for, or the primary thing, was the concept of the resurrection. Half the group agreed with him and half the group didn't. So Paul humbled himself and God gives him the wisdom to see the division in the room and to use that to his advantage. Instead of launching into the gospel, which Paul's heart, Paul longs to to share the good news with his Israelite friends. But Paul here, he uses wisdom and discernment in knowing his audience and where this is going. And so he throws out that ticking time bomb, the the question of resurrection, which he knows are going to leave these two groups heated. And so Paul throws it out there and he watches as it unfolds, right? We see the Pharisees rise up to speak, the Sadducees, and suddenly this becomes a huge arguing match. Paul had hoped to use the division to pull those who were for him on his side to make his point that the resurrection is real. Paul was doing this to show that there is hope in Jesus Christ about the resurrection. But what ended up happening is a huge fight broke out, so violent that they had to remove Paul. Now, as I said earlier, you remember Paul's deepest heart desire is to share the good news with his brothers and sisters. Why? Because that's Paul's backstory. Paul was a righteous, religious Jew who was persecuting Christians and then came to see and know Jesus. And so Paul's heart is to minister to the people who used to be just like him. Do you ever feel that? I don't know what situation you come from or background you come from, but there's a tendency in us as humans to gravitate towards people who we see ourselves in. We look and they have a similar situation, a similar family dynamic, a similar background history. And there's there's this desire that I believe God puts in us to minister to people who were in the same shoes that we were once in. It's no different with Paul. So he applies wisdom. He tries to get the Pharisees on his side. And what happens? Violence ensues. There are so many times in our life uh, that we set out to use wisdom. We humble ourselves and things don't go according to plan. And this is what happens here. Paul, Paul wanted to share the gospel. He wanted to share the hope of Jesus's resurrection. And before he could even get there, the room split and there was division. And so we see Paul, Paul who had just tried to speak outside to his fellow Israelites and there incited a mob too. So Paul's tried once to to preach the gospel and now he tries again, starting with the resurrection, thinking he can get half on his side and he fails again. But Paul applies wisdom. He knows who he's speaking to in this circumstance. And I just wonder, what does it look like for you to apply wisdom to whatever trial you're in right now? Whatever hardship, whatever worry, whatever pain, whatever fear, 
What does it look like for you to apply wisdom, to know who you're speaking to, to be wise in your discernment of how you interact, regardless of how the outcomes turn out? What does it look like for you to be wise, to submit to the law, to be obedient, to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, regardless of what the circumstances are? This is what happened here. Paul applied wisdom. He knew that there was a group that he was speaking to that would, re- that would potentially side with him and he couldn't control the results. It didn't go well. So Paul gets taken back into the barracks one failure, two failures. Now we see him sitting in failure in the the jail cell. And this is where we dive off into our third point, which is, in my opinion, the biggest point of this story. So it's one little verse. Verse 11 says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and he said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. Here we see Paul in his failure, in his darkness. You have to imagine that Paul, Paul's questioning if he has the ability to do it, if he's actually gifted, if he actually heard from the Lord. He's just experienced two times where he's put his heart on the line. He's risked his life to share the good news and both times ended in mob mentalities and he got taken away, unable to preach. And here Paul's sitting in his cell and here comes the Lord. The Lord comes and he stands by Paul and he doesn't say, oh, it's okay, old chap, you tried. He didn't say, hey, we'll do better next time. What does he say? He says, take courage, take courage. Why? Not because everything went well, not because they responded. Paul's sitting literally in prison. The Lord says, take courage. And in another translation, it says, be of good cheer. Now, why would Paul be of good cheer in this circumstance? It comes in the second part. Jesus says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Basically, the Lord is telling him, this isn't the end of the road. It's not going to end here. I still have plans to use you. I still have a call on your life. There's still things just like you did it here. You did good. You did good. It's not your, it's not your job to control the results. You were faithful and you preached and I'm going to send you somewhere else and I'm going to ask you to preach again in Rome. So right here, the Lord comes and he comforts him and he says, this isn't the end. You're also going to go to Rome. Paul can still be used by God. I wonder so often when you and I are sitting in our failures and the things that we did wrong and the things that didn't go the way we thought they would, even when we did everything right, when it didn't turn out the way we'd hoped, what is your attitude and posture towards the Lord? Do you ever feel discouraged? Like, I didn't go, well, I must not be good at this. I'm not good enough. I don't think this is what God has for me. I think I'm just going to like do a little career switch, pivot, try something else because it, clearly it's not working. Have you ever been discouraged like that in your soul where you thought you did something wrong? You thought, you thought it was supposed to go this way and instead things crumbled and went this way. That is where the Lord wants to meet with you. The Lord's not waiting for you on the podium of success saying, come on, figure it out, get here. The Lord wants to minister to you in the exact place that you are in, whether it's good, whether it's bad. I believe that sometimes the dark nights of the soul, those seasons that are so hard and they're so painful, that is the place that you and I long for the Lord's words the most. And so we are most open, I believe, to hearing from him, to hearing the Lord come and say to us, take courage, be of good cheer. I'm not done with you yet. This isn't the end of the story. Just because you feel like a failure, just because you feel like everything's closing in on you, 
It's not. It's not over. It's still happening. There's still more to live for. And so I wonder if any of you today need to hear that. Be of good cheer. Take courage. Um, The Greek word for be of good cheer is called tharseo. Can you say that with me? Tharseo means take courage or be of good cheer. They both have the same meaning. Um, And that word is only used five times in the New Testament. I want to read to you the five times that the Lord says this, just to give context for what he means when he's speaking to Paul. The first time is when Jesus told the bedridden paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. That's Matthew 9, 2. Second time Jesus says this is Jesus uh, told the woman with a 12-year-long bleeding problem, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well in Matthew 9, 22. And then the next time is Jesus told his frightened disciples on the Sea of Galilee, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid, Matthew 14, 27. And the next time is Jesus told his disciples the night before the crucifixion, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. And then the last time, the fifth time is right here. He says, Paul, be of good cheer. This, I believe, is the heart of this passage, that when things are going bad around us, we have a God who comes in who says, take courage, be of good cheer. I am with you. I'm for you. And I still am writing your story. This isn't the end. Don't close the book. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. I feel like this passage is so relevant to the season that we've been in, where there's just things in life that we go through that we can't explain, we don't understand, they feel too heavy for us, it feels too confusing, too painful, too big. And in those places, God comes in and he reminds us that he's still on the throne. He's still the author, he's still holding the pen, and he's not done with you and he's not done with me. It's not the end of our story. Where do you need to invite the Lord to speak into your life this week? What feels like it's dead or it's broken or you feel like you're at a dead end at the end of your rope? Where do you need the Lord to come in and to stand next to you, to be with you and say, be of good cheer? Will you invite the Lord to speak into your life this week? And would you have the power to see that our external circumstances don't determine the plans that God has for us. God is doing something. He's always working on our behalf for our good. He's bringing you and I into the completion of his mission. And even though it might feel foggy right now, it's not going to be this way forever. And so Paul listens to the Lord. And here's the deal. This is the reality of life. And I know you've experienced it as much as me. When it rains, it pours. And so here Paul is sitting in the cell. He just failed at preaching to two audiences who he really, really wanted to convert. If he could have converted the Sanhedrin, if he could have gotten them to understand the truth of Christ, that would have impacted all of Israel because they were the leaders of Israel. So Paul just, he's had this huge failure and he thinks things are going bad and Jesus comes in and speaks to him. Well, things are about to get a lot worse. So let's dive in. Uh, Verse 12 says, The next morning some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. 
Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell you. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to bring you to Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Which brings us to the fourth point of our session today, and that is that God intercedes. So here we have this intimate moment with Paul and the Lord, and the Lord says, I still have plans for you. (coughs) I need you to testify about me in Rome. And what we see, things get worse, right? This group of men come, they conspire against Paul. They say, we're going to take an oath. We're going to kill him tomorrow. And what does the Lord do? The Lord plants Paul's nephew in earshot of hearing this conspiracy go on. The nephew comes, reports it to Paul. Paul has the right to approach the commander and the commander listens to Paul. You guys, the Lord is always at work in the least likely places, people, places, and things. God is at work to make sure his plan to get Paul to Rome is intact. And so we see it unfold. The nephew comes, Paul is, can explain what's happening. The commander hears him, listens to him. And what the commander does, this is crazy. He, he rounds up 470 men to escort Paul safely out of that place. Whatever the enemy intends for evil, the Lord always uses for good. So Paul is sitting in this cell. He's frustrated. He just failed twice. He didn't, he didn't preach the good news. He didn't save anybody. He didn't help anybody come to know Jesus. Then all these men want to come and kill him. They're conspiring against him, but the Lord intercedes. I just wonder, whatever your circumstances, have you seen the Lord intercede? If you have, give him praise, give him glory for what he's done. But more often than not, it's hard to see when the Lord intercedes for us. So what I want to encourage you to do this week is to pray for the Lord to intercede in unexpected ways. We serve the God of the universe who can do anything. He can take the smallest little thing and turn it uh, of evil and turn it for us in our favor. And that's who the God we serve is, a God who loves us and knows the plans that he has for us. This, this man gets 470 soldiers. That's like a legion of people to come and remove Paul from the barracks, to remove him to safety and to bring him to Felix. We'll give him a trial where there is nobody waiting to murder him. The Lord saves Paul in this. And so Paul leaves, not only like as a prisoner bound and has to walk, Paul is mounted on a horse. God will position you for the plans that he has for you. And right when thing, it seems like nothing could get worse, I want you to pray for God to intercede in a way that you could not control on your own. Paul could have never placed his nephew there to hear about it. Paul couldn't have convinced the commander if it was up to him that this is true. I know that it's against me, but they're going to kill me. The commander listened to him, heard the nephew's request, considered it true, and acted on it in a way that would be completely for Paul. 
we have a God who wants to protect us, who wants to save us, who wants to help us, who is up there longing and waiting for you to invite him in to intercede. So I just, I want to encourage you this week, whatever situation you're in, invite the Lord to intercede in a new way. Maybe you'll see it, maybe you won't, but have the eyes to know that God is working his best for you. Um, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 talks about the Lord's faithfulness with his word and it says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish, accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The Lord spoke that Paul would testify him, for him in Rome. And once that word went out, circumstances started to shift to get Paul in place to be where he needed to be. Do you know that you have a God who wants to intercede for you so that you are in the right place at the right time in the right position? That's God's truth. All right, let's continue on. Uh, we, this is a big chunk of reading, so you guys are doing great sticking with it. All right, our last little section, we're going to go uh, so Paul is delivered. We're jumping in chapter 24, verse 1. It says, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reform in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. That's the smooth talk of a lawyer. Felix was not a good governor. There was times where he killed Jews by the thousands. He was bloodthirsty. He was violent. He was corrupt. He was money hungry. Felix is not a good man, but you see this lawyer come down on the part of Ananias and start to try to butter him up and flatter him. We'll watch Paul's response to this. Verse five, it says, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Uh, just so you know, that was, a, that was like a derogatory term. The saying, nothing good can come out of Nazareth um, is a true statement that existed in the time. So everybody who was from Nazareth was deemed unworthy or lowly. And so to say that he was from the Nazarene sect instead of just the way, which was what it, Christianity was called at the time, is just Tertullus just dogging him. And so verse six says, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. So here, hotshot lawyer comes down with high priest Ananias, who's not happy with Paul. And now Paul's going on trial. And this is the charge that they bring against him, that he's the ringleader of the Nazarene and that he desecrated the temple. Remember when Paul did a ceremonial cleansing? Uh, he didn't actually desecrate anything. He was doing a ritual that all the Jewish community would have supported. So they come, they bring these false charges against him. And here is where we watch Paul stand firm in his convictions and beliefs. So Paul responds in verse nine, it says, other Jews joined in this accusation asserting these things were true. Verse 10, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I will gladly make my defense. 
Notice that Paul doesn't flatter him at all. Flattery can really detract sometimes from the truth. And so Paul knows what's at stake here. So Paul doesn't flatter Felix. He's not trying to win him over or favor him. He just simply speaks the truth. I know you've been here for a long time. This is what's true. Verse 11 says, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accuser did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So the last thing we learn from Paul today is that when trials come, when everything else is up in the air, it's on the table, God calls you and I to stand firm. We see that Paul, they have no evidence against him. Um, They come in, there's no witnesses that can prove any of this, but Paul gets up and he states his truth. He states three convictions. He says, I am a worshiper of God, a follower of the way. I believe in the law and the prophets or the word of God, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Those are Paul's three convictions. Paul knows his convictions. Do you know yours? Do you know where your feet are planted. Do you know what you stand for? There's that quote that says, a man who does not know what he stands for will fall for anything. If we don't know what we stand for, we'll be tempted to fall for anything. Paul knows his beliefs and he states them so clearly, who he is and what he's about. I wonder if I were to ask you, what are your three convictions? What is one conviction you have? Do you know what you believe? Do you know what you stand for? So much so that if you were put on a court trial, that you could state it as simply and directly as Paul did. This is what I believe. This is who I am. This is who my God is. I love this conviction. We need to know as believers what we believe. What are we willing to stand for? Because if we don't know that, if we don't make that decision in ourselves, when the day comes that you're in the office and someone's talking about the crazy Christians or how false Christianity is, will you be able to stand on truth or will you go with the crowd? Paul's goal was never to be received and belong to whatever community he was a part of. His goal was always to speak the truth in love, to let people know what Jesus Christ died for. I believe in our relevant culture today where everything's about you do you, I'll do me. There's not always a lot of place it feels like to stand firm for what we believe. We feel like we're offending people or assaulting people or even just hurting their feelings. But you and I as believers are invited into this, this life called the way where we follow a God who put his stake in the ground for us. He said, I, these, my children are forgiven, I take their sins. That's what we believe. And so when you and I go into the world, there will be places that God tells us to stand firm. Where is the Lord calling you to stand firm this week? Where is he calling you to put your foot down? Maybe there's something in your life that, that needs to go. And maybe there's something in your life that you need to invite in. Maybe there's someone that you have put off forgiving for so long, but you know that really the truth of what you believe is that you're forgiven to forgive others. I don't know what it is, but I want to tell you that when we stand firm, God gets to move mountains through us. He gets to, we plant our feet on the rock 
and we stand. And what happens is we testify to the truth. Have you ever seen someone stand up for their convictions? It's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing to watch somebody who's willing to put their own pride, their own safety on the line because they believe something so deeply. It makes their belief a lot more convincing when someone's willing to stand for it instead of willing to throw it out because it's uncomfortable. I wonder this week, where is God calling you to stand firm? And as we see, we're not going to have a chance to read just um, the rest of the passage because of the time. But as it goes on, what happens is this trial is unresolved. Felix gets cold feet because Felix is all about himself and his pride and his political power. And so he knows that he cannot release Paul. He knows there's not enough evidence to convict him. So what he does is he puts him in holding. He says, I'll decide this later. Why? Because he wants the Jews to ally with him and be on his side. And so he doesn't want to offend them. And he knows by releasing Paul, he'll offend them. So Felix disobeys the law. And then he goes to meet with Paul. He tries to talk to him. He's tried to get, he tries to get bribes from him. At one point, he brings his Jewish wife, uh, who he took from her husband. This is his third wife. And they have a conversation with Paul where Paul is kind of speaking truth to them, calling out things. And again, Felix gets nervous and he says, okay, I'll send for you later. I don't want to, I don't want to make a decision. When you and I don't make a decision about Jesus, we just get lost in the shuffle. We get taken away by anything that comes and entices us. I want to encourage you today to make a stand firm on your beliefs in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. It will allow you not to falter, not to waver in situations where the Lord's inviting you or the Lord positions you or has prepared you to make a stand, to stand for the truth. God invites you and I to be his ambassadors. When an ambassador goes to a different country, they represent the nation that sent them and they are all for that country. You and I are ambassadors of Christ. We're sent on his behalf to bring good news into all the earth. And so I wonder in your own life, it's gonna look very different than Paul's. So it might be hard for you to think, what does it look like for me to stand firm? I'm not on trial. I don't need to preach this anywhere. What does it look like? Would you invite the Lord to show you what it looks like to stand firm? And the last passage of this, the last verse of this chapter, I want to read just just for context. In verse 27, it said, When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And because Felix wanted to grant the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. So in all of this, this whole time, Paul is still in prison. His external circumstances have not changed. Sometimes you and I, when we make a commitment to stand firm, at least for me, I want to see results. I go to God with surrender, but really I'm just hoping to escape something. Like if I stand firm, like you'll get me out of this. Paul's here for two years in prison, unable to preach, unable to share the good news, unable to fulfill his mission. But I have to believe that Paul clung to God's word, that he would again testify in Rome, that this isn't the end of the story. So I wonder if any of you in this season of life feel like you're in prison, if you feel like God has sidelined you, he's for, it feels like he's abandoned you, it feels like he's not even answering your prayer requests, not listening to what you need. Things seem to be getting worse instead of better. If that is any of your situations, I wanna encourage you as a sister in Christ to stand firm with Jesus, to stand firm in what you believe, what you know is true. This is not the end. It's not the end of your story. God is still writing it and God can turn 
any circumstance on a dime in a moment, and he can also turn any circumstance over the course of a long, long time. Whatever brings him more glory, he will do. God is a God who has your best interest in heart. And so if you feel stuck, if you feel in prison, if you feel like there's a situation that you cannot change, I want to encourage you, stand firm in that place of truth that this is not the end of your story. This is not the end of Paul's story. This is where we're leaving today, but after two years, Paul is still sitting in a prison, but God is not done with him, and God is not done with you. Will you allow the Lord to show you what it looks like to stand firm in this place, knowing this is not the end. God has more for you to do. And I'm excited to figure out what that is in the coming weeks. But for now, we have to pause because we can't go through the whole book because we got to get be together every week. So anyways, that is the end of our teaching for today. Uh, my prayer for you is that you are able to see what the Lord's doing and stand firm in it. Um, and so until next week, we'll continue on the journey of Paul, see it, where he goes after two years in prison. Uh, but this is not the end of Paul's story and it's not the end of yours. So blessings on you this week. May you stand firm wherever the Lord has called you. 